0: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Why are so many of us, particularly so many of us who, comparative to the world and history, are very affluent, have all of our needs met, all of our basic needs at least, why are so many of us unhappy, a lot or even most of the time? I did a Twitter poll before doing this episode, and I just asked, do you feel happy? only 6% of my listeners said they felt happy all or most of the time. 19% said they felt usually happy. Almost half, 47%, said they felt happy only some of the time. And the remaining 27% said they were usually or almost always unhappy. Now, that's not a representative sample, but it's actually holds up to what happens when you do have a representative sample. Only about 25 to 30% of Americans say they usually feel happy, which is quite a remarkable number when you think about it. So that's going to be the topic of this episode, how to be happy. An incredibly important question, and one that you would think moral consequentialism, particularly something like hedonism, would have a lot to say on. My guest joining me today has been labelled by journalists with the tag of, quote, the world's most influential living philosopher, end quote. Which is actually probably true, right? My guest today is Peter Singer. And if we take Marx to heart that the point of philosophy is not merely to describe the world, but to change it, then there's a good case to be made that Peter Singer as much as any living philosopher, can claim that mantle. Firstly, his work regarding the treatment of animals is often credited with starting the modern animal rights movement, as well as influencing the development of effective altruism. So several key figures in the animal liberation movement have said that his book Animal Liberation led them to get involved in the struggle to reduce the amount of suffering that we inflict on animals peter singer co-founded the australian federation of animal societies now animals australia the country's largest and most effective animal organisation on the altruism front he's the founder of the life you can save an organisation based on the book by that name it aims to spread ideas about why we should about why we should be doing as much as we can to improve the lives of people living in extreme poverty and i would recommend um, as a short introduction to that his ted talk on that his writings in that area include the really famous 1972 essay famine affluence and morality in which he argues for donating to help the global poor and two books which make the same case the life you can save and the most good you can do. But honestly, that's a tiny sampling of Professor Singer's overall contribution to these fields. He's written, co-authored, and edited more than 50 books, including Practical Ethics, The Expanding Circle, Rethinking Life and Death, One World, The Ethics of What We Eat, and The Point of View of the Universe. His writings have appeared in more than 25 languages, and he's been a columnist for many of the world's leading news organizations, including The Guardian. A lot more I could add to that bio, but I would be taking up a whole episode just to do it, so I'll leave it at that. And as a final note, I will say Professor Singer, I don't know how much this counts for, if anything at all, but is one of the philosophers I really look to as essentially getting it right, if we're allowed to say such a thing. But in terms of the moral consequentialist framework, a focus on alleviating suffering all around the world, a generally left-of-centre politics, yeah, I, I think this is correct. And again, I don't know how far you'd want to take my opinion on that, but Professor Singer really is someone, I think, just gets philosophy right, another person who I mention in this conversation who would fall into that category would be Wilma McCaskill. And if you are interested in this conversation, I recommend um, going back to season one, I have an episode with Will McCaskill called Moral Uncertainty. That is quite a challenging conversation, but people have said they found it valuable. And the other philosopher um, I mention in this who I've interviewed is Philip Pettit, And the interview I'm referencing there is part of the second series I did with Philip Pettit, and it's called The Birth of Ethics. The part of the conversation I'm referencing there is towards the second half of that episode, but that's a two-part series which kind of works quite well together. So if you enjoyed this conversation, please do feel free to go back and check out those. Apart from that, let's get straight to this episode. I was really, really excited to have Professor Singer on, and I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you.
1: Best known for my work about ethics and animals, uh, going right back to my book Animal Liberation, in, published in 1975, and for my work on uh, global poverty what are the obligations of us people in rich countries uh, in relation to people in extreme poverty? Uh, and that goes back to an article I also wrote in the 70s called Famine, Affluence, and Morality. Uh, And I followed that up with uh, a couple of more recent books, uh, The Life You Can Save, which currently I'm actually working on updating. Uh, We're going to have a 10th anniversary edition of The Life You Can Save by the end of the year. Um, And uh, The Most Good You Can Do is the other book that I've written in that field, which is about effective altruism more broadly. How
0: would you describe yourself in terms of your underlying Ethical or meta-ethical commitments. Is it fair to call you? Um, well, I'll just ask that question before putting a label on you
1: <laughs> Yes, I, I'm If you're <laughs> gonna say it's fair to call you a utilitarian the answer is definitely. Yes, um, I do consider myself a utilitarian um, uh, and That's so that's my normative position um, and uh, In terms of my meta-ethical position I'm now prepared to say that I um, I, I'm an objectivist. That is, I think that there are uh, truths in ethics. Um, I, I'm a non-naturalist. I, along the lines of people like uh, Derek Parfit, who is sort of a, a non-natural rationalist. That is, I think that our reason enables us to see that there are some basic truths in ethics.
0: Would you own the label hedonist, accepting as a qualifier that there are many different types of hedonist, but would you own it in the broad sense that the only I, source... I would
1: now, yes. A few years ago, I considered myself a preference utilitarian, but um, I eventually decided that the case for hedonistic utilitarianism was stronger than the case for preference utilitarianism. Um so, yes, I'm happy to own that label, too. Okay, effect. So here's my first, like, philosophy question for
0: you and the context to the questions that... I wanted to ask you in this interview is when I have someone who's fairly high profile on, I try and avoid retreading an interview they've already done a few times. And I was rereading a number of your pieces, particularly The Shallow Pond. And I noticed that there was an undercurrent of the overcurrent is, you know, the global good is served by treating animals better or being involved in charities and other things. But there was also an undercurrent of a sense that a lot of people, even in wealthy nations, weren't happy, and that they weren't finding happiness in the things that society told them that they would find happiness in, and your vision of um, effective altruism, if I can use that phrase, was a possible alternative. Um, So the, the first philosophy question I wanted to ask you is accepting both hedonism and utilitarianism, which I think I... I do also as a sort of amateur philosopher. Is there any necessary connection between what's going to make our personal lives in a hedonistic sense valuable, what's good for us personally, and pursuing what would be globally good, whatever that might turn out to be? Or is it just a happy accident that because of evolution or psychology or social conditioning. It does tend to be the case that we're made happy by doing good, but there's not necessarily any reason why it ought to be so. That was a long question, sorry.
1: Yes, but no, that's a good question. Uh, I think the answer is the second of those. That is, uh, I can't see that there's a necessary connection. Uh, It's not somehow written up in the fabric of the universe or in the fabric of reason that we should be the kinds of beings who get happiness and fulfilment out of making the world a better place? Um, and I think, as evidence that it's not a necessary connection, I think there are. You know, it's not not even true of everybody in the actual world that they do get happiness and satisfaction out of that. But I think many people do. Uh, and perhaps once you've satisfied your your basic needs, that is, once you've got enough food and shelter and maybe some. Uh, uh, company relationships, which are really important for human beings, um, then uh, helping others and having giving yourself that sort of purpose is a, an important component for most people in terms of of happiness. But but it is something to do with with the kinds of beings we are. Um, it's not a necessary truth.
0: So I wanted to ask you that because that's m- my best guess as to that as well. But when I'm discussing this with someone who's not. A moral consequentialist—they tend to find that answer profoundly disappointing, and they want me to be able to say that there must be some connection, and there must be something wrong with a happy Caligula or something like that. And I I just don't have a better answer. In that they're just two separate questions, and it's it's very fortunate when they coincide, but there will be instances when they don't. Um, But then. I, I think people view that sort of as an admission of a failure of this ethical theory how you must have been in that position how do you sort of make sense of that set of concerns
1: I think that that's kind of a, a legacy of a sort of view of the universe which um, is certainly is held by religious people who somehow want to believe that uh, you know everything has been made by a a divine creator who um, is all powerful and also uh, all good and therefore everything in the world must be right somehow if only we could understand it uh, and uh, you know within that sort of framework then you would want to think that Caligula couldn't be happy that somehow you know somebody as evil as Caligula has to be punished um, and then you can invent uh, hell and you can say well they may seem to be happy in this world but you know they're going to roast in in hell forever after and that's an eternal torment so you know they'll be sorry um but i just think that's a sort of nice little fairy tale that some people tell themselves that that the world was somehow constructed in this way with uh uh, so that everything is going to work out for the best and unfortunately if we understand uh evolution and other things that science tells us about how the world came to exist and how it came to be as it is That's just not the case. So that might be an
0: answer that's disappointing to some, but that just has to be the answer because that's what's
1: true about the universe. Yes, it's disappointing only against a background of illusions, illusory hopes about the nature of the universe. Final question on this point
0: is, if we um,
1: are advocating
0: for others to do good in the global sense, so you've spent a lot of your career... Advocating for people to give to charity. Um, I've spent a lot of my career actually working for charities in development departments, so asking people either directly or via mail or email or whatever to give money. What are we, if we accept that there can be such a fundamental disjuncture, what are we actually doing when we make that moral case? We're appealing to something, right? Are we merely appealing to like, that some number of people will be psychologically disposed to that? Or is there some sort of, are we, is there any sense, I guess, in appealing for people to prioritise the global good over their
1: own? I think there is some sense to that. Um, I think that we can argue that uh, there is an ethical requirement to do that. Now, ethical requirements don't carry... Sanctions as, as I've just been saying, you know if you don't meet those ethical requirements, but most people well again let me say you know most people maybe in reasonably high income countries where they can meet their basic needs, et etc most people want to be thought of as living ethically. They, want to, they don't want to be thought of as being purely selfish or, or living just for themselves. And I think you can appeal to that and you can appeal to the sense of, you know, if you are living ethically in today's world, it's not enough just to obey those commandments that begin with, you know, thou shalt not. You, you shouldn't kill, maim, injure, cheat, steal, lie, those sorts of things. Um, but but if you're lucky enough to be living in an affluent country and to have some surplus uh, income that you or you spend it on things that you don't really need – then part of living an ethical life is to take account of the fact that there are hundreds of millions of people living in extreme poverty still in the world today, and we can do something to make their lives significantly better at no cost or uh, at most a minimal cost to ourselves. So I think uh, you can put those, those arguments to people, um, and if they are concerned with ethics, they may well follow them. Uh, and, of course, you can also... Uh, as I have done, point out the psychological research that suggests that they are likely to be more happy and more fulfilled anyway if they if they act in this way.
0: I think, right, there's a good um, case that you are, it is in your hedonistic interest to participate in moral norms, hedonism there defined broadly as like leading a meaningful life rather than your immediate hedonic state. Um, I, I talked to Philip Pettit, who I'm sure you're familiar with, and put the same
1: question oh, he's to a him. Of minor Princeton, in fact, yeah, He, he does a similar
0: probably. thing to you, right, where he's half and half Australia-US. Um, yes, that's right. I mean, that's completely beside the point. Um, but anyway, his answer was that we are invested in our persona in a way that goes beyond mere reputational concern. And at the end of the day, participating in moral norms is a sort of deep authenticity, and it's um, that we want to be the sort of person that we want to project to others. But that there's no law of nature that that sense of hedonistic satisfaction in that participation, though real, will necessarily overwhelm other sorts of considerations
1: that might lead you to do evil. Yes, I I think I'd I'd agree with that. I mean I probably wouldn't have used the word authenticity but um, maybe I would have talked about a a harmony between our values and our our action and what we're doing um, which probably isn't very far away from what Philip is talking about either Uh, and I certainly would agree that uh, although this is important I think uh, and important in a sort of long term fundamental way, it doesn't overwhelm other interests and desires we have. Um, and in fact, particularly, of course, you know, we have these, these short-term desires, uh, or, or you know, strong impulses, urges, desires at a particular moment. And we all know that they overwhelm what are clearly long-term self-interested desires as well, that people do all sorts of, of crazy things in the moment, um, you know, which they know are going to be very likely to be bad for them in the long run. Um, they take risks and do things that are put in peril, you know, their long-term relationships uh, because of a momentary desire instinct. So I, I think it's not only a conflict between these strong short-term desires and ethics, but also conflict between short-term and, and longer-term desires.
0: Question just occurring to me now, and I should say just as a clarifier, I forget if authenticity was the word Philip Pettit used or that was me characterizing his view. So I'll, I'll own that if that was a, a mistaken attribution on my part. But... That's a critique that's often made of your views, particularly sort of of like the shallow pond thought experiment and so on, that you allow no room to the possibility that people just are going to prioritise their own life plans over the global good, and in some sense it's normal and understandable that they do so. But from what you just said, it sounds like you can accommodate that possibility perfectly easily into your
1: framework. Oh, yes, I've, I've never made the sort of factual claim that everybody is going to save the child in the shallow pond. Um, I've simply said that they ought to do so. And, uh, you know, of course, it, you know, it, do, it doesn't follow that they will. So I can I, uh, the facts about human nature, I don't think are, present any kind of problem with my view. Some people might say, um, well, you, know, you ended up saying something like, and it's reasonable for them to do so. Yeah, I did add that qualifier. So yeah, and that, that's a slightly different claim, right? Um, and I it depends what you mean by reasonable. To some extent, I, I wouldn't deny that it's normal for people to do so. I certainly wouldn't uh, necessarily blame people who, uh, you know, depending on how serious their 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 self interested concern was, or depending how much they'd done ethically. So I wouldn't blame people who didn't do everything that they ought to do ethically because I think ethics can be extremely demanding uh, given the world in which we live. Um, But uh, uh, I certainly still think that there are good reasons why um, we ought to act ethically, uh, even if we shouldn't expect that people will always do so.
0: Okay, so returning to the question of is our happiness or pleasure or hedonism fulfilled by acting morally. One thing you argued, I reread the original Shallow Pond um, article recently, one thing you argued in that is that we live in societies that have very much geared us to expect that earning money and status will make us happy, but we actually are increasingly finding that that isn't the case. Could you elaborate on that a little?
1: Yes, uh, I think that's, that's right. Um, so we live in a society in which, as I've been saying already, um, we can satisfy. Most people don't have any trouble satisfying our basic needs. And uh, in fact, the amount of time that it takes us to earn enough to meet our basic needs has been shrinking uh, over the years. So that I, I think I saw a calculation that Uh, The typical American can earn enough to feed themselves and their family in six hours work a week or something like that, some very small amount. Um, And this is, of course, a contrast with the way we we and our our ancestors lived for most of the period that our species has existed. Um, uh, That is that we had to spend most of our days gathering and finding food or a lot of of time to do that. Uh, And... So now we have this situation where um, we can meet those basic needs quite quickly. And then the question is, so what do we do with the rest of our time? And the same uh, commercial interests that have provided for us to meet those basic needs by uh, developing an economic system that's highly productive in terms of food and clothing and housing and uh, various other things – also, of course, uh, encourages us to buy a whole lot of other things um, and to to think of consuming uh, things as uh, the major pursuit of our life, that we we need to be able to afford certain things. We want to buy things. So uh, we fill in our time with thinking about the things we buy. Uh, Shopping becomes a a recreational activity for many people. um, And uh, the idea that what's in our interests is to earn more money and to be able to to have more goods. Uh, I think uh, Ivan Bursky, who was a financier who uh, went too far and, and got into insider trading, had a T-shirt which said, uh, he who has the most toys when he dies wins. Um, and, and that kind of attitude, not for children who, you know, Either five-year-olds we might have that but but for somebody who's 50 and thought about life I mean I think that's a, a, a really crazy attitude but in fact it's it and maybe the t-shirt was kind of a joke but but it is actually uh, it's a joke that works because we recognize that all of people in fact are living in this way um, and and yet all the psychological research suggests that it's not uh, a path to fulfillment um, it's maybe a path to Occupy ourselves and give ourselves a purpose, but, but there are all these other purposes in the world um, of the sort we've been talking about, helping people in extreme poverty, combating climate change, reducing the suffering of non-human animals. Uh, and I think we can find more fulfillment and a more durable purpose, if you like, a purpose that stands up to our ability to reason much better than the idea that our purpose is just to, to buy better and more expensive consumer items.
0: Um, John Maynard Keynes, who I've been reading a lot of later, said that future people will look back in astonishment, that we elevated, and I quote, one of the most distasteful human attributes, meaning the desire for money for its own sake, that we elevated one of the most distasteful human attributes to the position of the highest virtue. And he goes on to call it a disgusting morbidity, something one runs <clears throat> off with a shudder to professionals in mental health. Um... And I do, I do sort of wonder if a more moral future people might just sort of look back on as, um, in John Stuart Mill's words, as not just false but absurd. Like, what were they thinking that this was the object of society? I think a lot of people might follow you with the first half in that, yes, money is not making us, and the pursuit of money is not making us happy, and the grind, as people call it, isn't making us happy, but is giving a lot of money to charity necessarily an alternative to find meaning and happiness in a society that, in spite of its affluence, is failing to provide it? You could say, you know, you're still in the same capitalist society, now you've just cut a big paycheck to Oxfam. Is that really what's going to provide the alternative?
1: Well, there are certainly people who think that. Um, I'm just, as I said, I think earlier, I'm working on a revision of uh, the book, The Life You Can Save, and I'm looking at people who've written to me over the 10 years since that book was published uh, about uh, their activi- activities and so on. And and one of them actually was from a, a car salesman, somebody who was working, selling uh, expensive prestige cars to wealthy people. Uh, And and he wrote that after reading The Life You Can Save, he decided to donate 5% of the commissions. He was basically, his his income was mostly the commissions he made on the sales, 5% of his commissions to um, some of the charities recommended by The Life You Can Save, uh, and uh, he's found his life much more fulfilling now because previously, uh, you know, he saw it as, as pretty pointless. Yes, he was earning money. He was getting the, giving these wealthy people really expensive cars, but you know, they don't really need it. Uh, and, but now uh, he has got a purpose in what he's doing and he's talked to his colleagues about that and encouraged some of them to do the same. Uh, and I've, I've had a few, quite a few letters along, along those lines. Um, and I know people, for example, are former Princeton students who've, Gone to Wall Street not because they were passionate to make a lot of money for themselves, but precisely because they wanted to earn a lot of money so they could give a lot of money away, um, and and they find that rewarding as well. Now again, I'm not saying that's for everyone. I think probably most it's it's not for most people. Most people would want to have a more direct connection with what they're actually aiming at, and would rather work for uh, a, a non-profit organisation that's doing good directly. But um, but it's certainly another way of, of, of helping, and uh, you know, for some people it is fulfilling. So it it just will depend on the kind of person you are.
0: Well, let me add um, another um, element to that, which is um, just sort of like my personal story. So this isn't going to be a question, it's just going to be a statement, and then you can respond to it or not as you, as you see fit. Um, but one of the criticisms of The Shallow Pond, which seems valid initially, but on reflection I think is actually a little psychologically misguided, is that obviously it's going to be much more emotionally and psychologically impactful and fulfilling to to pull the child out of your pond yourself, as opposed to donating whatever the equivalent sum of money would be necessary to save a child halfway around the world um, who um, needs your assistance. And I I was actually thinking about this recently as stuff that I might ask you about, and I realised with an absolute jolt, because I'd almost forgotten it, that I've personally been in a Shallow Pond scenario. It wasn't exactly contiguous, um, but when I was a teenager, um, a young girl I knew my age, about 14, 15, got very intoxicated and fell in the sea and started going under, and I went in and I pulled her out, and it was absolutely terrifying and i got some props for it afterwards and that's generally you know is well well regarded action um and then i've spent maybe the last eight to ten years working for progressive organisations and charity. And if I think, never mind what the good of the money I've raised for charity is, and when I say I worked for charity, I've worked in development. I've worked asking people for money, not directly providing the services. What's more directly impacted my happiness? What's more made my life meaningful and fulfilling? There's absolutely no doubt it's been participating in fundraising, indirectly helping people. Like like I say, I mean, I'm very glad I did it, but that was an impulse decision when i was a teenager that has in no way informed my life purpose or who i am as a person or like the satisfaction i take in life whereas being part of a moral community who do give money to charity and more than that building into my life plans that not everything i'm going to do with my life but part of what i'm going to do with my life is try and participate in the global good that's been so much more informing to my well-being than this one immediate spur of the moment thing. So that didn't end in a question mark, but I just wanted to sort of put that to you.
1: Yeah, that's that's actually really interesting because the, the psychology, the literature does suggest that we get more out of helping people who we see, um, who we know. Um, uh, and that's perhaps why people might go and help out with a local soup kitchen or something like that uh, to help people who are homeless get a, a, a good, decent meal. And, and they find that satisfying, more satisfying than sending money to the Against Malaria Foundation where you will never know. You know, you will pay for some bed nets. You can even find out which country or region the bed nets are going to but because you'll never know which child's life was saved by the bed nets. Um, so uh, there is some suggestion that the people are more likely to respond to the identifiable individual in front of you than to the statistical life uh, and and your story is an interesting difference from that because i suppose you also didn't really know in the fundraising you were doing uh, you you never encountered a person who was saved by the fundraising or, or assisted by it is that right
0: um with one exception um basically never um I think the difference, there's immediate and distant, and that's definitely the case. I think there's also planned and unplanned, because the shallow pond, or the story I've just told, are pure reactive, right? It's just, what does your fight-flight reaction in your head do in the moment? And then there's, like, what are you building into your life plan? Now, you could build into your life plan directly directly. Aiding people, but that's probably something most people can't do. Whereas a great many people can build into their life plan, i.e., a particular career choice, or merely just donating a certain portion of their their income to charity.
1: Right. Yes, I think that's that's true. Um, but I suppose there's a question about what difference it makes to your psychology whether it's 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 built into your career plan or or something that happens that then nevertheless you think of as this was, this was a great moment in my life. Um, and, and I imagine some people might think that saving the, somebody from drowning in the sea was a great moment that they look back on from time to time and say, well, my life has been worthwhile even if I do nothing else good um, because I saved that one person. Um, but uh, obviously if you know, they think as you do, then then they will take the larger picture and they will think, you know, yes, I, I happened to that situation at that time, and I was able to do that. But um, I did make a deliberate decision and life plan to try to spend not just a moment, but but years of my life helping others. And uh, even if I don't see the individuals I helped, that's nevertheless a more important thing to do. Uh, And I I agree with that. I just wish that the the psychology that you've described was the psychology that uh, everybody has. Um, Unfortunately, the the research that I read says that it isn't, but... We yeah,
0: are. I mean, we, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, we, we could wish that everyone was more motivated to, to behave in certain ways, but it, it, it would just be wishing. I, I think there might be a case that of like, you don't, what does Mill say? You don't, I'm going to butcher the quote, but essentially, you don't know a pleasure till you've tried it. And like, before you immediately rule out the more long run building something into your life plans, you should try it. Like, because probably most people only have the um the the memory, the experience of behaving strongly altruistically in immediate um moments like the shallow pond, maybe not that severe, but something like that, whereas they don't have the experience of um building it into their life their 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 sort of aspirations in life, and so I would sort of say, try it, you know like what have you got to lose apart from a little bit of income you know.
1: Yes. Um, So you're right. Mill said it's people who have experience of different pleasures who are the better judges to which is the the greater pleasure. Um, And The the only thing I'd say about, you know, saying that most people don't have this experience of altruism is I think most people are much more involved in in their close relationships. So they would say, well, I'm acting altruistically because, uh, you know, when my mother was ill, I... Spent a lot of time visiting her in hospital, or you know, I brought her food that she liked, um, uh, and those sorts of things. And then they will talk about other other friends and, and family that they've acted altruistically towards. So I think people are uh, altruistic and are aware of that in their lives, but it's it's within the small circle. And for me, part of the problem when I talk about global poverty, um, or even more so perhaps when I talk about non-human animals, is is getting people beyond those circles to see that there are all these other beings in the in in the world uh who for whom they could make a huge difference in terms of what their lives are like
0: yeah and one thing that's always i mean i don't know if you that's always very important for me is i'm in no way trying to detract from the fact that you will have um relations of care with your immediate family and close friends and so on no one's trying to come and take that from you we're suggesting that this is an additional thing you know i'm i'm almost suggesting it in the same suggestion that i might i i might suggest that you'll you'll you take up going for a run twice a week like it's it's something you would do in addition to everything else that you're doing that might not seem immediately like the thing you want to be doing but would overall be good for your life satisfaction you know um Moving on, you did just briefly reference um giving money versus <laughs> working for a charity. How do you think about that? Because I know uh, your colleague Will McCaskill has talked, and I think he's moderated his view a little, about actually if you want to pursue the global good the most, you know, be a Wall Street banker and give half of it away, that will actually probably, in a utilitarian sense, do far more than, you know, going to work for Oxfam or something. Um how do you but then again on the other hand some people just really want to go and work for Oxfam and that's where they find meaning. How how do you make sense of of that particular divide along the the, the, the route to leading a meaningful life?
1: Yes, um so as I, as I said I think there are a small number of people who can get satisfaction out of uh trying to earn as much money as they can, you know, well by some reasonably legitimate way and i think they would have moral limits to what they would do to earn that money but uh uh, you know it might so this former student of mine his name is is matt wager has did go to to wall street he had a good math background as well as philosophy background he ended up writing algorithms for a commodity trading company that attempt to predict whether the price of i don't know iron ore or wheat or whatever is going to rise or fall and the company then makes bets on that um it doesn't you know, it doesn't do any bad, anything bad, I think. It's not expropriating poor people from their land so that some big multinational can use the land for a coal mine or anything like that. Um, uh, so I think it's it's kind of neutral, and he actually, I think, enjoys perhaps being mathematically inclined. He enjoys the work of trying to improve the algorithms that will predict the market in these things. So, so that's kind of uh, challenging for him. And then, of course, there's the satisfaction of knowing that he earns a lot of money and can give a lot of money Away, but as I say, I think that's a relatively small number of people who are who are like that. Um, and uh, for others, uh, you know, certainly, I mean, Oxfam and all of the other uh, agencies, non-profits. Do need talented people. Talented people working for them can make a big difference, and I think that's one of the things you mentioned. Will McCaskill, I think, has moderated his views. I think he's he's more aware um, and gives more weight to the idea of the differences that talented people can make by going to work to for effective aid agencies. So the the utilitarian calculus isn't as obviously in going to work for in the finance industry um, if you're a talented person as as it seemed to him to be at first but but certainly that's an option that was neglected that that he helped to put on the table and I think we should congratulate him for that I think that was a, a useful thing to do
0: yes i i agree i think as someone who works for charities that there's got to be someone on the other end of that donation giving us the money right there's got to be both sides there's got to be the person using the money and the person giving it otherwise the equation just collapses and the whole thing doesn't make any sense Yes, that's right, that's right. Yeah. Um, Staying on the subject of working for charities, I wondered if you had any thoughts on this at all. So um, I am strongly invested in working for charities, and I would make the case that a lot of people find not just do good in the world, but find a lot of happiness and meaning working in a sort of like-minded moral community, even if they don't directly see the results. One thing that has been concerning recently is a number of the big charities. I mean, we mentioned Oxfam. Um, I could also add to that the Southern Poverty Law Centre and Amnesty International have recently, um, I mean, even just in the last year, had a number of quite public scandals about how they use their money. And what's particularly concerning to me, I mean, charities will waste money from time to time. It's not pretty, but it happens. But what's particularly concerning to me about how they treat their staff, and apparently a lot of people have felt that those work environments, I'm just going by the press reporting, here have been quite abusive, apparently. And I don't know. I, I I mean, every company will have its bad apples or whatever, but I worry that maybe working for a good cause has become an excuse for some people to deprioritize the lower status people in their organization. I'm just wondering if you've seen those scandals and if you have any thoughts on them.
1: I've seen them in the sense of reading the media reports about them, and I have read that it's had a apparently a, a reasonably marked effect on, on donations to organizations like those we were talking about that have been involved in these, in these scandals. Um, and, and that's a pity. Um, it's, an, it's an understandable reaction, of course, uh, because perhaps people had the idea that everybody working for these organizations were really dedicated people uh, trying to do their best for, for people in great need. And I'm sure many of the people who work for these organizations are like that. But they're, they're big organizations um, and they employ, uh, I guess, tens of thousands of people. Um, and it's inevitable that you will get some people who will abuse their situation and their power. That, again, is unfortunately an aspect of human nature. So it's it's not surprising. I think uh, we might say, well, the leadership of these organizations was, was somewhat slack in looking out for this and being aware that this might happen and uh, having safeguards against it happening. Um, Now I hope they've been burned once by this and they're they're going to be much more careful in terms of taking precautions about uh, protecting everybody, um, listening to whistleblowers, all of those kinds of things that you can do that are helpful. Uh, So I'm I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say it won't happen again, but I'm Mm -hmm. hoping that it it happens again on a much smaller scale it's more uh, detected much earlier and uh, it doesn't doesn't get as far uh, so yeah i think you know you you have to accept in any large human enterprise there's a potential for things to go wrong um, and some of these things that we've seen Obviously, things have gone badly.
0: If I could just give my own personal view on this, um, and then, you know, you can respond or we can just move on to the the final few questions. Um, My view isn't at all that this should act as a reason not to give to charities. Now, revelations like this might impact which charities we give to, but even then, there's none of the organisations I've just named who I wouldn't still consider supporting. I think there is a larger question of um, ethical governance when it comes to charities, and that we have overall, and I think what we've seen with these scandals is the end impact of that, been relatively bad at living up to our own moral, and in some cases overtly left-wing ideals, about Uh, democratic governance, shared and accountable power, and stuff like that. And I think it shouldn't surprise us if the way we structure and staff and govern these organizations essentially replicates the structure of corporate America. We shouldn't be surprised if that same structure ends up producing the same abuses. And I think that it's time and past time for more sustained thought about how power is held accountable both in our society but also within these small supposedly progressive organizations
1: yes, i certainly think we can think about that it's It's not going to be easy to find a solution um, i uh, were for some was for some years involved with the Australian Greens. I was a founding member of the Australian Greens in, in the state of Victoria, mm. where, where the city of Melbourne is. Um, and the Greens were very concerned about not replicating the, the power structures of the major parties uh, and essentially tried to have a participatory decision-making procedure uh, initially where uh, decisions would be taken by consensus. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a, a noble ideal, But essentially, it means that that those who are prepared to sit there and talk for the longest end up making the decisions because Mm -hmm. the meetings would go late into the night and some people would have small children who were going to wake them up early the next morning and they would need to go home and get some sleep and other people wouldn't. Um, And eventually, the Greens had to uh, really abandon that consensus decision making and in that sense get more like the other parties in order to simply to be reasonably efficient uh, and to... Lead to decisions that seemed actually more representative of, of everyone's views than the consensus uh, uh, idea that had been trialed before. So it's not, you know, there is going to be a conflict between efficiency and that kind of uh, breaking down those power structures. And uh, it's going to take some ingenuity to find compromises that uh, are going to be both satisfactory in, in terms of reforming the power structure and not replicating. Uh, the 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 evils that we've been talking about, uh, and still having an efficiently run organisation.
0: Yes, I mean, absolutely. I remember not the Greens, but going to see the Occupy movement when that first came up. And, you know, the desire to hit the reset button on civilization had all too painfully been realised. I think you Mm -hmm. can veer too far the other way. And if you have an employment structure where you have employee at will employment, where anybody can be let go for any reason, without right of appeal, and there's no collective decision making at all. Like you say, I think it's a compromise and... Occupy is on one side of the spectrum, and some of the more, shall we call them corporate non-profits, are on the other. Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay. um, that's my hobby horse. I won't burden you with it. Um, final, final thoughts. Um, if I th- – final thoughts just on the role of philosophy in leading a happy life is if I think about philosophy being used to help people lead happy lives – I don't go to hedonism, which would seem to be the most logical choice. I don't go to utilitarianism. If I'm thinking about public philosophy, um, there's been a big revival of interest in stoicism, um, particularly amongst men, I've noticed, and a big revival of interest among like... I think it's sort of pseudo-philosophy, but like right-wing self-help gurus like Jordan Peterson, um, which have a sort of very anti-feminist philosophy, and they see feminism as a force as like making people unhappy in the world. So I'd be really interested in your thoughts if you've encountered either of those movements on your general thoughts on what's going on under the name of public philosophy trying to make people happy right now.
1: Well, I'm not really aware of the revival of interest in Stoicism, I have to say. I, I haven't come across that. Of course, Stoicism can be interpreted uh, in various ways, including as, as a form of hedonism. That is, that uh, it's avoiding... It, it has It's hedonism with a focus on avoiding unhappiness. Um, and, you know, um, saying, well, even if I'm in prison, my mind is still free, and I can still think about what I want to, um, and I don't have to think about uh, oh how miserable it is here I am in prison locked up I can't do all of the nice things that I would like to do um so uh you know I need to know more about exactly what people are getting out of stoicism to say uh is that a form of happy of, of hedonism maybe not the best form or not the only form but uh, or or is it something completely different um the right-wing view about happiness, I guess, has been around for a, a long time. Um, I'm thinking of Ayn Rand, for instance, here, and and her idea that we we produce the best society through uh, promoting the virtue of selfishness, um, because then everybody will be enterprising and uh, and they'll you know build the the, the greatest buildings and the best con- the structures and so on. And you know, there's there's obviously some sort of argument about that. People have got very rich, providing things that are convenient in our lives that we all use, like um, computers and uh, mobile phones and so on. Um, uh, so I'm yeah, I'm aware aware of of that sort of view. Uh, I think that it's it's one-sided. Um, you know I, I, obviously there is some truth in the idea that people can be motivated to be productive through the idea of of getting ahead, becoming wealthy, becoming famous, whatever it might be. Uh, but I think that uh, you need to balance that with the kind of views that were put forward long ago by uh, Peter Kropotkin, who sort of argued that um, cooperation and sociality are really the basis of happiness in life. Um, and then there are various modern forms of that that you can range in to balance and Rand, like uh, Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs, which included social needs and cooperative needs, and uh, in a sense, uh, you know, purpose-driven uh, ethical needs as well, self-realization needs. Uh, so I think there's there's a whole variety of different ideas about, about happiness out there. And uh, there's there's a lot being written about that. And there's a lot more research going on about happiness right now. And I, I welcome that. I think it's important that people think more about about happiness. And I actually, a few years ago, I was invited to a conference in Bhutan, which is a country that has gross national happiness as its Sort of indicator of uh, whether it 's succeeding rather than gross national income um, and uh, I thought it was a great place, I must say I really admired what they were doing um, and uh, uh, so I think I think there are lessons to be learned from that for a lot of other countries as well.
0: yeah, I mean, listen, obviously, I completely agree. What do you make of the right wing um, account of happiness that our happiness is being undermined? Um, not so much on the economic side, but on the social side, by so-called social justice movements, but that things like particularly feminism, but also um, Black Lives Matter, um, calls for um, uh, the, the end to oppression of marginalized groups, that those sorts, that the right-wing idea that those sorts of um, Uh, social justice causes are sort of infecting our society and breaking down traditional institutions. Um, So like feminism is supposedly breaking down the traditional institutions of marriage and manhood and so on, and that that's reliably making all of us of any gender or race less happy. I don't subscribe to that view. I was just wondering if you had a take on it.
1: No, I certainly don't subscribe to it either. And um, you know, I think in that context, it's worth pointing out that uh, one of the Great 19th-century utilitarians, John Stuart Mill, uh, wrote a wonderful book, uh, *The Subjection of Women*, in which he pointed out that the traditional institution, certainly as it was practiced in England in the mid-19th century, uh, produced a lot of misery for women because they did not have uh, options. Uh, in, in fact, uh, married women in England in Mill's time could not own property. When they when they married, their property became their husband's property, and so they really had no options, if their marriage was a bad one, um, they could hardly leave as they would be completely penniless. Uh, so you know, I think, I, I don't think even the, uh, the anti-feminists today would want to go back to that. But I think that a lot of the constraints that feminists have undone have been ones that have oppressed women and have left women with few choices when they were in bad situations. And I welcome the fact that today they have a much wider range of choices that they uh, you know, can can go out and earn their own income. That uh, they don't have to be ashamed of being what used to be called a spinster. Um, you know that they're that they're living an independent life without a man in their life. Um, I think all of all of those things are tremendously important in promoting happiness. And uh, I don't at all see that they're undermining the happiness of uh, of our society in the 21st century. Yeah, completely
0: agreed. Um, so cheesy question to close with then um the people i've referenced um i won't go back to stoicism i could elaborate but that'd be like a whole other half hour conversation um but the people i was referencing on the sort of conservative right often try to distill their self help into like a number of bullet points tidy up your room in the morning, this sort of thing, right? Good conservative advice. Um, If we were giving advice from a hedonistic or utilitarian perspective, what would be some chapter titles in a self-help book by Peter Singer?
1: (laughs) That's uh, that's an interesting uh, idea, yeah. So uh, there would be a a whole range of different areas. Uh, Obviously, some of the things we've been talking about, like – find a, a larger purpose in your life um, that you can contribute to and that you can feel is is meaningful and rewarding. Um, that's certainly one. But, uh, you know, it does also um, have really strong personal relationships. I think that there's, again, great research showing that, that that's more important. I can't remember the exact figures, but uh, there was some research showing that, that studied a lot of people as to what made them happy and uh, having strong rela- a strong relationship uh, was more important than multiplying your income by some quite large factor. Uh, it, it also so increases your life expectancy quite significantly. That, Sorry, got that as well. That's right. Yes. Um, so that's uh, something that's that's uh, really important. Um, try not to stress about uh, about money and not to get obsessed with uh, with money and with uh, buying things. Um, Uh, because I think that's often a source of of unhappiness for people, that they feel they need to sort of match others or surpass others, and uh, they have to keep working to do that. It's a kind of uh, treadmill that they get on, and and in fact, it doesn't really bring them satisfaction. So uh, try and avoid that. Try and avoid thinking of the importance of of status symbols and uh, things like that. Um, They don't bring uh, happiness in the long run, I believe, either. Uh, so um, I suppose those are probably the the, the major chapter headings. Without without um, <laughs> going into, I'm sure there'd be others when I stop to think about it for uh, for rather more. But uh, yeah, they they seem to me to be an important part of, of feeling you know feeling good with your life. And as I said right at the beginning of this discussion, try to bring your your values in harmony with the way you live. I think that's important too.
0: Do you think there is a role for um, a sort of empiricist hedonism to play in creating self-help for people? Because self-help tends to be dominated by religion, psychology, some of these right-wing figures that I've talked about. Is there a role for people who think like us ethically to... um, I'm I'm not volunteering to do it, and I'm not necessarily Mm -hmm. suggesting you do, but is there maybe a gap in the market there?
1: Yeah, there could be. It has actually. Been, people have suggested to me that I should do something like this, <laughs> uh, and uh, I've got other things on my agenda at the moment, as I said. Um, but uh, you know, I'm, it's possible that one day I will, um, when I run out of other things that uh, seem to me to be more urgent or important. Um, I, I think it's an it's an interesting idea. I, you know, I'm a lot older than you. I've had a lot of experience of life, and maybe it would be interesting to try and distill some of that and put it into. Uh, a kind of a, a, a practical advice book, a self-help book, as you say. It's,
0: it's, I'm being somewhat—I'm being somewhat facetious. I just think it's—it's it's an intriguing thought.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, I wrote a book many years ago uh, called "How Are We to Live" uh, back in the '90s, which has some elements of that in it um, and a critique of sort of consumer society at the time.
0: As a final question, then. Um, and if this is slightly personal, we can just pass on it. But having spent a life deeply invested in both thinking about and um, advocating for certain moral norms, has that brought you happiness?
1: The answer to that is, is unequivocally yes. I feel I've been very fortunate in my life, um, fortunate uh, specifically to relate to your question, fortunate to be able to work at something that I really enjoy in itself. I think um, that's that's another, I guess, work would be a chapter in this book that we were just talking about. And, and the, you have to be really lucky to be able to support yourself um, and any dependence you have by doing something that you would would do anyway um, to, the, to the amount of time that you could spare to it, even if you were not getting paid for it. Um, and even if you had to work at something you didn't like in order to get enough money to put food on the table um so i've been very lucky in that um i've also been fortunate in those personal relationships that we talked about my wife and i just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary not long ago Oh, congratulations uh, thank you thank you we got married quite young as you can see but <laughs> somehow it worked although that might be a recipe for making mistakes but uh, in our case it we we managed um so uh, that's good i've got um you know i'm um, Children and grandchildren now, and uh, I think that's that's a part of my happiness as well. So I think I've been very fortunate, and uh, you know, in the in the nature of my work, I I do get to travel to different places, uh, see the world a bit as well. Um, so uh, for me, uh, you know, but but the big reward, of course, is the feeling that I've been able to think about interesting issues, and also that I've been able to write things that have meant things to people and have changed the way people live and, uh, and in positive ways that have encouraged people to, to do more for the poor or to, um, uh, campaign for animals to stop some of the suffering that we inflict on animals or to at least stop eating animals, those sorts of things. Um, that's meaningful to me that the things that I write have actually changed people's lives in quite direct and, and, you know, even quite fundamental ways, because what we eat and what we do with our money are both pretty fundamental things for us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Professor, Um, I really want to thank you for your time for this interview. I've very much appreciated being um, having you on. If there's anywhere you'd like to direct people to go to follow you or read your work, and as an auxiliary, if there's um, any particular charities talking of like finding meaning through doing good that you would like to recommend to people in closing?
1: Thank you for that opportunity. Uh, So uh, one website I would like people to go to is The Life You Can Save, which is thelifeyoucansave.org. And that is a charity that uh, I founded that spun off my book of the same title. And precisely its function is to recommend charities uh, in the area of uh, global poverty, uh, that we would like people to support and donate to because we think they're highly effective and we think their donations will do more good uh, with those charities than with you know, more or less randomly selected charities in the field. So uh, if you go to the lifeyoucansave.org, have a look at what it says there, but there's a where to don- donate button and that will give you a list of about 20 charities that we recommend. If you want more information about me and what I've written and, uh, you know, future events that uh, might be in your part of the world, uh, go to petersinger.info. That's my personal website. Uh, it has some always on the on the homepage. It has my recent writings and any future events. And then it has a larger list of writings and other items that you can go to from there.
0: Awesome. Thank you for your time today.
1: Thanks very much, Toby. It's been good to talk to you.
0: thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Next week, I'm going to start a new season on the podcast just to mark a bit of a clean break from what we've been doing for the past several weeks. And I'm going to do a solo project where I do a deep dive and take three episodes to really get stuck into Machiavelli. And I'm going to do that episode both to look at that author and then to ask the deeper question, what are we doing when we do History of Political thought? You know, we have this book open of Hobbes or Locke or Machiavelli or Plato or whoever. What are we doing to that book? What steps are we applying to it? And what is the end product that we hope to get out of it? And I'm going to argue that there's actually different methodologies that we can use because we want different things from those texts. And one of those things is to inform and support. Particular ideologies that we hold in the present. So, I'm going to be looking at what links we can make and what support we can draw from Renaissance Republican authors in our contemporary project of social democratic or even radical thought about income inequality, the gap between the rich and the poor, and class conflict. If you want to see how I bring all that together, please do tune in next week for the start of season three of the political philosophy podcast, where I'm going to take a deep dive on Machiavelli. As always, if you want to support the podcast, you can do so by sharing episodes on your own social media. That always helps. So if you listen to this episode and enjoyed it, um, please do share it. Um, Other people might enjoy it too. So please do help get it out there. If you're able to support on a monetary basis, we have a Patreon page. It's just patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, and you can sponsor us for whatever amount. I've been recommending people chip in $2 an episode, but, you know, whatever seems fair to you. If you can do more, if you can't do that much, even a buck helps. So big thank you to everyone who does that. If you want to follow the podcast... All of the links are on politicalphilosophypodcast.com, all one word, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So we have a Twitter, we have a Facebook, you can follow us on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud. We're on almost all, I think, of the major um, podcast apps like Castbox, stuff like that. So you can follow us pretty much whatever way you want. And the links to all of that, as well as all of the past episodes and our Patreon page, are on our website. So, apart from that, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll return next week.